0: The uh, title of my message today is When Nobodies Encounter Jesus uh, Like we read, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 And uh, my, the title of my message might offend you If you don't like to consider yourself a nobody And it uh, doesn't surprise me if you are offended by that Because that's the culture that we live in today uh, We are in a high esteem culture We are living in a world and a period of time where we are seeing over and over again the ideology and the theme of what is called self love. If you happen to go home tonight and type in your Amazon search bar books about self love, you will not struggle to find books entitled things such as 31 Days of Self-Love Workbook or The Gift of Self-Love or Love Yourself First How to Heal from Toxic People and they probably would say, like me. Um, Culture has an obsession with self-love today and so it would reject the label that we are nobodies. They would say that it's demeaning and that it's unhelpful They would say instead that humans should grow in self-esteem, that we should love ourselves more. One uh, popular celebrity says it this way, speaking particularly to young girls. I think every, every girl needs to love herself regardless of anything. Like if you're having a bad day, if you don't like your hair, if you don't have the best family situation, whatever, you have to love yourself and you can't do anything until you love yourself first. The problem with this sentimentality is that the Bible does not portray mankind in terms of its own opinion of itself. Mankind is defined by the values that God sets upon us. So we come to this interesting um, crossroads because we believe two paradoxical ideas. One, we're created in the image of God. Therefore, God assigns to us value. It's not value that we assign to ourselves. God assigns that as his creation that is valuable. We are valuable and we have worth um, greater and farther uh, above what animals and trees and plants and everything else uh, goes. I don't want to get on the soapbox of of why we want to ascribe value and worth to animals on an equal plane as humans because it's unbiblical. Doesn't mean we mistreat the world. It doesn't mean that we harm our animals. But it definitely does not in the Bible teach us that we are coequal. God has identified us as valuable. The problem is, is that he has also identified us as his enemies. That we are broken. That we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And the problem with self-love is not that we should not be encouraged in our day or that we should not be shaming ourselves. I think that might be uh, the um, motive behind it. The problem is is that if we are trying to heal ourselves from our own insufficiency, we are always going to fall short. Podcast, um, a podcaster and book, an author uh, that I would recommend, her name is Allie B. Stuckey or Allie Beth Stuckey, has a popular podcast uh, for all believers. I I have uh, been thankful for it. Uh, She wrote a book on self-love and the culture's obsession with it and how the Bible speaks to it. She comments, quote, Our sufficiency isn't the answer to insecurity, and self-love isn't the antidote to our feelings of self-loathing. Why? Because the self can't be the problem and the solution. If our problem is that we're insecure or unfulfilled, we're not going to find the antidote to these things in the same place our insecurities and fears are coming from. Our self-love isn't enough to make us confident. Our self-sufficiency isn't enough to bring us peace. Our self-care, self-empowerment, self-help, self-whatever are only going to give us many good vibes before we move on to the next self-betterment program. The self isn't enough, period. End quote. You'll be reminded that the Bible teaches that because of a fallen relationship with God, Ephesians tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus told his own disciples not to love themselves, but to deny themselves. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, If anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow him. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself or his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and of his holy angels." So while we can acknowledge that God gives us value and worth in His eyes because of His creation, we also must recognize that because of sin, we are called to deny ourselves in order to become in a right relationship with God again. That is not self-love, church. Self-love will fall flat, Christ's love will succeed, and we will find fulfillment and satisfaction in Him. If I can for a moment, let me unmask to you the undergirding foundation of self love. Self love is idolatry. Be reminded in the Garden of Eden, when, when Eve was tempted by the devil, we were told in Genesis chapter 3 For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be what? Like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was the tree to desire to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate. This is the beginning of the self-love movement because it is idolatry in in an act of trying to be like God. Why would, why would we equate being like God as self-love? Because self-love desires to heal itself. It is a self-healing process. It is a dependence not upon other people on a divine God. It's a dependence on yourself. It began at the garden when Eve took the fruit in rebellion against her authority, seeking to satisfy her own longings and be like God. You don't have to travel far in the story of God to see that this continues in a place called Babel, in Genesis chapter 11, where the people come together, and instead of being unified under the the glory of God and the beauty of God and the creativity of God, they begin to want to make A tower and a city with the top in the heavens to make a name for themselves. He says, they say, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We see the nations divide there. They are dispersed by God as a form of judgment. And the, and the underpinning is what? To make their name great. This is post of uh, flood, destruction, and judgment. This is post Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden and the tale of the beauty and the perfection that existed there but because of sin and rebellion. And yet still man continued to honor themselves, to want to glorify their own name instead of giving glory to God. It was self-love. It's not a coincidence. It's the very providence of God that in the same location, if you want to ask me, hundreds of years later where Babel stood in a tower, you have Babylon led by Nebuchadnezzar. Both places in the land of Shinar Both places representing idolatry and sin and rebellion against God. And you just happen to have in Daniel chapter 4 an example, just one example. There are countless examples in Scripture of the idolatry of man trying to steal away the glory of God. But King Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, who was used by God as a tool and a vessel to judge God's people... He stands above his kingdom, and in Daniel chapter 4 it says, "...all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar at the end of twelve months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, "...is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty?" So what started in the garden and what continued on through the tower and the city of Babel continued on to Babylon. So much so that Babylon became the picture and the representation of sin and rebellion against God. Revelation chapter 17. In a figurative sense, if you interpret the Bible that way in Revelation... Notice that Babylon is reflective of all those who sin against God in their rebellion. Revelation chapter 17, the woman is told to portray, is arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual morality, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. Babylon became not just a place of idolatry and rebellion against God, it literally became the representation of that, that which Christ would overthrow. And so Paul is dealing with the Corinthians and he's dealing with them in such a way because he sees such pride and arrogance and idolatry and self-love creeping into the church, particularly as they war against each other and as they compete against each other, much like Mr. Adam made us do in church today, causing us to faction and divide our, our, our powers that be. Good job, choir number A. We definitely rocked uh, the, the competition today the divisions and the factions, right? Seeing that creep into the church, so much so that the pride and the arrogance and the, and, the, and the idolatry began to swell within them. And Paul had to deal with it. And he deals with it in verses 26 down to verse 31, so that they might be put in their place, they may have a proper understanding of the sin that dwelt within them. So as we look at this passage today, let's first begin with the idea that self-love is sin. He says, "...for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise." God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, bring to nothing, things that are. You have to understand that as we come to uh, the, the idea that, um, that Christ has uh, suffered and died and rules and reigns, then the gospel message of Jesus Christ gives us a proper perspective of our own origin story. Our origin story begins as, as children born in our mother's womb, born with a nature of sin. I was talking with someone about this the other day, and I, I, I tried to send them the quote that Vodi Bachham says, that, that our children, even at a very young age, reflect the very nature of sin within us. And vody says that you may think your children are little angels, but little angels, but they're actually vipers in a diaper. And that's so very true. We begin to see the, the struggle and the discontentment and the, the lust for things that don't belong to them. And, and we think, oh, that's so cute. But the truth of the matter is... Is that the Bible teaches us that they are born into a nature of sin and they will continue to produce and reflect that nature of sin as they sin, not only against you as their parents, but against their Creator. And Paul reminds us that our origin story, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, has been rewritten because of Jesus. He changed our origin story. Now we have a new birth. We have a new change and so he begins by just reminding the Corinthians as brothers and sisters in Christ, consider your calling. Your calling again being reflective of God drawing you to himself out of darkness into marvelous light, out of the pit of destruction to salvation and liberation that we have in him. And so while the Corinthians and likewise us at times fall into arrogance and fall into self-idolatry, patting our own selves on the back, Paul reminds them, consider your calling, brothers. That as God called you out of uh, the the pit of hell and, and chose to save you, He did not do so, he says, because of three different reasons that He gives as examples. He did not choose you to save you because you were wise according to worldly standards. Now, that's a gut punch to the Corinthians, right? It may not be so much to you. Our culture these days isn't necessarily built upon on the back of, of those who are wise as, as it was in, in the days of Corinth. Matter of fact, truth is so relative today, who's really wise, honestly, in the eyes of the world? It's all relative. It's what your truth wants to. You want your truth to be, basically, according to the worldly standards. But this was a a vying, a competition for worldliness. And Paul's reminded them, wait a minute, you weren't a wise sage when God called you out of darkness. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Equally, you were not powerful. He says. When God saved you, you did not have authority, you did not have power, nor were you of noble birth. In other words, your family name was not a product or a, 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 the, the way in which you gained your salvation. No, your divine calling came because God chose to lay His gracious love upon the weak and the lowly the destitute, particularly those uh, that, that we describe as people without hope, destined for hell and destruction. And what he does is he flips the script on what is truly noble and truly wise and truly strong and powerful. In the same way, As he takes the lowly and he exalts them in Christ, he takes the wise and the strong and the powerful and he weakens them and shames them in their earthly standards. I remember a guy that I went to high school with at Houston, and he was, in all accounts, filthy rich. Filthy rich. He had the best parties. This guy had an elevator in his house, which in that day was mind-blowing. And when he turned 16, this is now, I was born, or I graduated in 1995, so bear with me. This may not mean something to you, but when I was, when he turned 16, he got a brand new Dodge Viper sports car, V8 engine. Very powerful, very, very uh, expensive His dad owned a prestigious company here in town and his name was plastered on billboards, promoting his company, plastered on trucks. His name literally brought recognition and prestige. This peer of mine, all his siblings carrying that last name, had a social and political capital that I never had and I envied them for that. And I thought, oh, if I just had this money, I wouldn't be driving my grandfather's truck from 1993 that had a Mother Mary medallion glued to the dashboard because he was Catholic. I had to pry that thing off with a screwdriver. No, I, if, I just, if I just had these means, if I just had this power, I would, I would have popularity. If I just had this family name, I would have success and I would have identity. But now I understand things differently. I mean, what are those earthly treasures really worth? That company that his dad owned no longer exists. He might be a successful man, but that money is now gone because those things of this earth fade away. Temporary happiness, thrills, memories, all of it fades. And when it's lost, it makes it a harder fall for us because we've now fastened our identity to those temporary things that are easily fleeting and falling away. And what Paul is trying to help the Corinthians understand is that their true origin story starts with Jesus Christ. He writes our identity. He is the foundation of our identity because no accomplishment, no birthright, no physical, social, or financial power has any meaning to our true identity in Jesus. We are the lowly of earth. We have nothing to give, nothing to claim. Therefore, we deserve nothing. We are no bodies. So that when God chooses to elevate us, to exalt us, to honor us, He's really just honoring His Son whom we belong to. Ultimately, verses 27 and 28 are about God glorifying Himself. Notice the words, God as the primary subject of that sentence. He didn't say, the foolish were chosen by God. Grammar means something in the New Testament language and the Old Testament language. He said, no, but God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low and despised, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are The power is behind what God is doing. His electing grace, His gracious call to believers in salvation through His Son, and generally the overall sovereignty of God to use the lowly and the meager to bring His name glory. The point that Paul's trying to make is simply that this is about God being exalted for what He's done through His Son. Colin Brown states it it well. He says, through the cross, glory and shame have undergone an exchange of values. What the Romans thought as a barbaric form of death, what the Jews considered as a curse of God, the Son of God hanging on a tree is actually an act of love, grace, and glory. And the plan of redemption and the atoning work of the Son is carried out through that method of destruction and suffering. And that same cross that shamed the wise and the strong because it exposes the failure of that wisdom reminds us that we are fallen short with God and yet by His grace He has extended His love to us. That's why we'll wear a cross, and we'll get a cross tattoo, and we'll, we'll fasten it in our, in our sanctuaries and, and on things that mean something to us because the cross is not a torture device to us that means agony and despair. It means agony and despair out of love that results in our salvation. Therefore, we cherish it. And by the way, we cherish an empty cross, not a cross with Jesus on it because he, he rose again. He's no longer there. He's no longer suffering because the sacrifice has been paid. So if you struggle with this understanding of self-love, then be reminded of Paul's writing in Romans chapter 3. If you just flip over probably four or five pages in your Bible, you're going to get to Romans chapter 3 pretty quick. Remember what Paul tells to the Roman church about their own separation from God, about their own need for Him so that they may not boast. He says, what then, verse 9, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, and their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a clear passage of understanding for us how self-love is sinful. Self-love is an act of man's pride and it's an offense against God. We fail to glorify Him. We fail to honor Him. Because what it eventually leads to, Paul tells us in verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are. Why? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you will boast. And by the way, the boasting there that Paul will say here is not just a bragging, it's also a trusting. Because when you pull yourself by, up by your own bootstraps, your chest swells, your, your confidence gets greater, so that the next time that you run into a difficulty and a struggle, what will you do? You'll remember how strong you are, how patient you've become, how wonderful you are. You've talked yourself into being a great person instead of relying on a God who makes you great because He's great. On a God who exalts you because He has exalted Himself and glorified Himself, you are merely a recipient of the things that He has done. So Paul's point is simply this, Church of Redemption and Church of Corinth Is that when we fail to understand our true origin story, absent of the work of Christ and the message of the gospel, we will boast in the presence of God and we will be guilty of an abomination in his sight. So simply, self love is sin. And secondly, we would say then that Christ's love is wisdom. Christ's love is wisdom. Paul continues in these verses 30 30 and 31. Because of Him, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Folks, if the whole purpose of our existence, of our reality, of the reason that we dwell on this earth is to exalt God, to enjoy Him forever, if we acknowledge that self-love is sin, man pride is sin, boasting in ourselves and our own strength in sin, then ultimately we seek out to glorify Christ, to bring His name exaltation, not our own. Be reminded that in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Or Psalm 115, my favorite, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. So therefore, friend, we must understand that the sovereign Lord of the universe is and should be the subject of our boasting. Our confidence, our trust. He should be the one who receives these things, not ourselves. Why? Because He is our foundation. Because of Him, it says, verse 30, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. The motive of His work, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the glory of God. And Jesus the Son, God's Son, was the motor. He was the one that brought it together in the Trinitarian plan and work of God as the Father, Son, and Spirit work together to bring about redemption to sinners through the work of His Son, by the power of the Spirit, according to the plan of the Father, sinners are given grace because Jesus is our foundation. If you've ever been on a, a lake trip, and I hope you have, it's always fun, if you have a friend that owns a boat and you sit in that boat and you choose a swimming spot and you throw that anchor out into the water, and typically if you have a good, good anchor, an anchor rated to the size of your boat, then you stay in that spot and swim for hours, But if you've misjudged the size of your boat, then you've gotten an anchor that's too small. And the waves and the weight of that water begin to move the boat and drag the boat and, and the anchors struggling to do anything but dredge the bottom of the lake. You're no longer stationary, you are adrift and you are floating throughout the day. I would say that the church is adrift it's depending upon an anchor that does not hold, that is too incapable of doing what it's purpose to do. And only Christ is the foundation, is the, is the, 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 the way in which the, the church rests itself upon the work of Christ and all that He has accomplished. This is what Paul is teaching us. You have nothing to boast in. You have nothing to trust in, in yourselves. You must see the sovereign work of God and all that He has accomplished for us. Trust in Him. Rest in Him. Know that He will keep you saved and secure and sanctified. Because of Him, you are in Christ, who became, He says, to us, wisdom from God. This is why it's wise to love him. This is why Christ's love is wisdom. Because what Paul is saying here is that the true wisdom, Corinth, that you seek, the true wisdom is found in Jesus. This is what you should be looking for. Not wisdom in men, wisdom from God. And Jesus is personified wisdom from God. And then he gives three examples of that work of Christ that we receive the blessings from that lead to us understanding it as wise or wisdom from Him. There is the judicial, there is the ethical, and there is the spiritual. He gives three examples. Because of Christ, because of His work, because of the the way in which He brought about redemption, He provides for us what? Righteousness. Righteousness is a judicial word. It's a word that allows us to understand our position before God in and of ourselves as weak and incapable of being made right with Him. Therefore, in Christ, we receive righteousness. We understand that as a right standing before God judicially. So therefore, we stand before God in a place which we are considered innocent because we are in Jesus. And let me just warn you, church, that if you are not in Jesus, you stand as His enemy. Doesn't matter what part of the church you sit in. Doesn't matter how much money you give to online preachers and teachers, how many ministries you support, how many mission trips you go on. If you are not resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you have not received His righteousness. And therefore, you stand before God guilty. You you should stand before God not with a fear and trembling of respect, but a fear and trembling of His wrath against your sin. But because of Christ, because of His great work that He has uh, provided for us, His perfect righteousness is given to us. The, The theological word is imputed. That imputation is literally the the transfer of Christ's righteousness to those who are undeserving so that we might be free. And so, as Adam graciously read for us in Hebrews chapter 10, we have confidence to enter into the throne room of grace as we read. We take our prayers and our requests before a holy, wrathful God, not afraid of Him, knowing that Jesus has appeased His anger against our sin, and therefore we have full access to approach a holy and living God. All because of the righteousness of His Son that He possessed and that He imputed to us. We would celebrate His righteousness. But secondly, holiness... Your word, your translation may say sanctification. It's the same idea. Holiness. He's talking about the way in which Christ changes us from the inside. Not only is our position changed before God, but we are literally physically changed ethically and morally. In Christ we have the wrath of God appeased, but also through Jesus we're being made holy. And that this inward work is a cleansing work that's spoken of that sin's power is destroyed and sin's effect in your life is also destroyed. One act of destruction happened on the cross when Jesus died. And the resulting act of that destruction is the resurrection of Christ from the dead whereby we are reminded that sin no longer has a hold on you. You may struggle with it. You may wrestle with it. But you can have victory over sin in Jesus. This is the power of God in Christ, church. So we don't lose heart, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Though our inner self is wasting away, or our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is is doing what? Being renewed day by day. And this brings us hope. This brings us thankfulness and celebration. Knowing that we could not accomplish such a victorious defeat in ourselves, but Christ being the one who not only brings us righteousness, but makes us holy. And we're thankful for Him. That when we look in our spiritual mirrors every day, And we realize and see the ongoing besetting sins that we fight. And I hope you see those. I would say that a Christian who celebrates self-love isn't willing to look in the spiritual mirror in their closet. And really diagnose their heart. And really see the shame of sin that still dwells within them. Christ has given you victory. But sin is there to be fought against. And as we fight against that sin, we celebrate the victory in Jesus. To ignore the sin is not to be reminded of all that Christ has done. And it hinders and it paralyzes our work of sanctification and holiness. And lastly, a spiritual a spiritual benefit We use the word, or Paul uses the word redemption. It's a spiritual liberation. We are spiritually free men and women where God has worked in us so that we are no longer slaves to sin. And instead we are recipients of the freedom it provides. Jesus paid it all, we sing. That's redemptive language. Slaves at once to sin and death, now slaves to Christ. And yet freed... And this is helpful if you can imagine to a, a group of people in Corinth who, like us, are from different socioeconomic levels, but in that day and age, literally slaves could have been sitting in the audience, in the, in the congregation during a gathering, maybe even potentially sitting next to those owners or masters over them, where they worked and they, they, they were loved by these families. But as slaves, they, they, they felt invaluable or, or undervalued. And they were reminded in Paul's words as, as they would stand and read these letters from Paul that as Gordon Fee says, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That because of the work of Jesus, no person's more valuable than the other. This isn't about ethnicity. This isn't about social standing. This is about Jesus makes us equal in Him. Because we've all been destitute. We've all been dead in our sins and trespasses. We've all been made alive in Christ when we believe and trust in Him. And therefore, no matter our stories, our stories in Jesus are the same in all that He's done for us. In righteousness, in in sanctification, in holiness, and redemption, He has freed us. And therefore, hierarchies and factionalism are destroyed because of the gospel. Divisions are not needed because Jesus has made us equal. And, and I would add, equally precious in Him. Equally valuable in Him. Equally important, especially for the work of the church and the mission of God in the world. And so finally, Paul concludes, as he does throughout his letters, in really summarizing his whole argument with an Old Testament passage from Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. Jeremiah, like Isaiah, was a a prophet that always had bad news. He was the lamenting prophet. He was warning the people of Israel and Judah of the, the great destruction because of their sin and their failures and uh, against God. And in the passage in Jeremiah chapter 9, Jeremiah is laying forth the judgments of all people, not just the people of Israel, of all nations, because of their rejection of God, because of their desire to worship self and not the Creator. And Jeremiah concludes, summarizing Paul's argument, But let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt and Judah, and Edom, and the sons of Ammon, and Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Jeremiah's warning through the voice of the Lord is simply this, they may act that they love me as the people of Israel, or even these Blasphemous and and pagan nations who, as he says, are uncircumcised. None of them give homage and none of them give glory and worship and, and adoration to where it's deserved to be, where it's meant and purposed to be, and that's to the Lord. And so he reminds them that judgment is coming upon all those who boast in themselves. But let those who boast boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord that practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. So then Paul, summarizing, says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the question this afternoon, church, is simply, who is your confidence in? Who is your confidence in? And in in the way in which you identify your own salvation... Who is your confidence in as you one day stand before a living God and He may ask you, why should I let you into heaven? Are you going to boast in your own works, in your own efforts, in your own spirituality, in the great ways you serve the church, and the great ways you cared for people? Or are you going to solely rest in the work of Jesus Christ His Son and what it accomplished for you? Church, are you going to be a people that finds great value in worldly philosophies and worldly wisdoms that creep into the church and pollute and corrupt it, therefore leading us to love ourselves and find great self-esteem in ourselves? Are we going to be satisfied in our identities and our purposes in this earth in who Jesus defines us to be, His Beloved? Those belonging to Him in the body of Christ. That's where we find our greatest purpose. That's where we find our greatest hope and satisfaction is knowing that we as enemies of God have now become followers of Him and children of God by the finished work of Jesus. And in that, may we be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed by your grace. We're humbled by your love for us. That although we are sinners, although we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. We acknowledge, Lord, our failure to be righteous in ourselves. We acknowledge our failure to understand, to seek after God. If we're honest with ourselves, Father, we acknowledge the the sin nature that rears its ugly head throughout our lives day by day. And that we had no spiritual value or worth or merit that brought you to our doorstep. And so we cry out to you with thankfulness. Celebrating the work that you have done because of your great, unconditional, gracious, and steadfast love. Thank you for being willing to send your son to die for worthy or worthless sinners like us. Thank you that you have made us heirs of your kingdom by your grace, that you've blessed us with an inheritance to be obtained through all eternity. In your presence, God, help us to find our identity not in these fleeting worldly things, but in those truths that you have revealed to us through your Son. May we celebrate your work and your character. May we give you thanks. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together.